0: Today's podcast is sponsored by RadRx, your source for quality online education for interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, taught by subject matter expert, Stacey Buck. For more information and testimonials, visit RadRx.com. Struggling to learn interventional radiology coding? If so, RadRx has the perfect solution for you. Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology online training program. In this program, interventional radiology coding expert Stacy Buck breaks down the complexities of interventional radiology coding in easy-to-understand terms so you can grasp this complex specialty. Through her course, Stacy has assisted many coders with little or no interventional radiology coding experience in successfully passing the CERC exam on the first attempt. For additional information and testimonials, visit radrx.com. Welcome to Who Cares What Stacy Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level. And now here's your host, Stacy Buck.
1: Welcome to another episode of Who Cares What Stacy Says? I am your host, Stacy Buck. For today's episode, I am again joined by CDI pioneer, Mario Perez. In this episode, our discussion focuses on how artificial intelligence is transforming the world of CDI and how CDI roles are changing as a result of the implementation of this new technology. We wrap up the episode with a brief exchange on the risks and benefits to patients with the implementation of information blocking rules. And now here is part two of my interview with Mario.
2: I've seen many a program with artificial intelligence with CDI that really um, ask a question to a provider and a provider doesn't know up front that you know they're thinking that the computer's correct. And you could have an inappropriate diagnosis based on that decision that the computer made. And I think it's added um, issues from a compliance perspective in some instances. There has to be what I call... Artificial intelligence clinical annotators. This requires skill sets not of an IT person, but a health information professional. That said, the artificial intelligence asked for a question for systolic heart failure. Is the computer correct? Did the computer look at these source documents, at these diagnoses, to come up with that question? So although I may not be coding that condition, there has to be a clinical annotator. And I foresee that as a very viable skill set for an individual, whether it be in an inpatient setting or a managed care setting. And that skill set is going to be that individual is able to understand uh, the clinical parameters of where CDI and coding are going into that perspective. I mean CAC was a perfect example, computer assisted coding. Everybody got on that bandwagon and many coders says, wait a minute, I'm getting confused here. Where are all these codes coming from? These false positives. How would you know it's a false positive? Right. Well, Stacey would yeah. know. She's she's in the business thirty years. Computers only asking Doing right. what it yeah. was told to do. So that's coders where go, yeah. So that's where I see coders are
1: always worried.
2: Coders are always worried
1: about technology taking over their jobs. That's a question that I get a lot from a lot of coders. And I actually have been working with an AI company um, who's developing some software. And so I'm, I'm learning a little bit more about it and I'm understanding it. And I try to let everybody know that the artificial intelligence, it's it's a tool, just like CAC was a tool. It doesn't really replace the coder. Now, I, Now, eventually, I believe that coding jobs will start to be eliminated many, 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 many years from now. We're talking, it's going to take a while to get the technology where it needs to be. I mean, CAC has been around for a while and CAC did not replace human coders. And the thing is, it's like, I'm working with this company as a human coder to train the software to perform and think like a human coder. And it's not as easy as people would think to actually get it to the point where, it can produce a regular outcome. I actually was reading um, in preparation for talking with you today, the white paper that AHIMA and Actis had put out about technology in CDI, and they were reiterating in this white paper that it's about increasing you know, the productivity for those working in CDI and that artificial intelligence is a tool to help the person. You actually have the ability to take, and I try to explain this with coders with AI coding software, that mundane stuff that doesn't require a lot of human thought that is like routine. And it's the same thing over and over and over again. That's the stuff you'll no longer be dealing with. You will become that auditor or that reviewer where you have to validate what the software is bringing to your attention. Is this valid? Is it not valid? That's going to be whether it's coding software, whether it's going to be the CDI software. So it will prompt you. And then you as the human coder, then have to go in and look at those prompts. And then you will actually take action based on how you're prompted. So it can help you perform better and get better outcomes. But you're so, I try to tell people, you have to think about elevating your skill set within coding because coders are always going to be needed. Software will not replace everybody. But again, the routine mundane stuff where it's like the same 99% of the time, those, so I feel like entry-level positions will probably eventually go away. Those ones that we term now entry-level, um, you know, for some of those lower-level services where the coding doesn't change. I mean, like a screening mammogram is a screening mammogram. How many different ways are you going to code that? Don't have a lot of options there um, for it. So things like that are taken away from the coder, and then I feel like your skill set is more valuable in that respect on that back end where you're becoming that auditor, you know, before the claims go out the door, you're working in denial management. So it's taking the skill set and shifting it somewhere else. And I still see, even with technology going into CDI, that there's still a lot of opportunity for people who want to go in to CDI with the changes. And I kind of want to pivot and specifically go there. That's one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about because you have so much experience in CDI. So, you know, since we're talking about technology, you know, obviously I said, you know, you were doing CDI before CDI was cool. You know, you were in on the very beginning of CDI when that came into effect. So obviously there's been a lot of changes in technology since you've been in the field. You've seen that you talk about that in the evolution of your career. What do you see um, happening in CDI in the next five to 10 years? Like, where would you recommend that those pursuing this is a career where they would put their time and attention right now, thinking ahead to what it's going to look like now that we are moving into this role of artificial intelligence in CDI?
2: Great question. So I do believe that individuals pursuing CDI, whether once uh, whether it be a, a nurse credential, a foreign graduate medical credential, or an HIM credential, that you understand very much the clinical pathophysiology of diseases. Because the fact is that when we're looking at CDI from a a clinical documentation integrity perspective, you're looking at the dynamics of specificity of the I-10 codes. And the I-10 codes right now are reflective of what? The more specific, the diagnosis is. I do believe already, there is already artificial intelligence that when you talked a good point about, you know, it's not replacing the individual, but the individual role of doing the work changes. So mind you, 40 years ago, I would have a paper record and I knew exactly with my rear rubber finger where to go into the medical record. I knew exactly what source document I needed to get what I wanted as a professional. Fast forward, I don't have a paper. I have a screen looking at me that's plagiarized with 3 million notes. It's plagiarized. Plagiarized. <laughs> plagiarized sometimes, I should say, and cloned with the sources in the medical record what how can i work in that environment how can i scan for that you talked about productivity that slows a coder down and they know it right so artificial intelligence is going to be able to scour the entity of what source documents are correct to abstract a diagnosis from Instead of you diving into the information, the information is brought forth to you through artificial intelligence. So it's almost
1: like the way I see it is it's like it comes to you like on a dashboard. And so you've got everything you need in front of you. Yes,
2: it it does. So the newest technology out there that I'm familiar with, obviously with CDI, that it highlights within the documents already, the source documents of these diagnoses. What the computer still doesn't know, if that diagnosis is still relevant, depends on the grammar of how it was dictated. Because sometimes you could get a false positive, but that is being looked at by clinical annotators working with technology that require an HIM experience. There's a difference between making an assessment that you have pneumonia in the medical record documented, which... Rule out your pneumonia, or is it history of pneumonia? The computer only sees pneumonia. The rule out pneumonia, obviously, is the consideration. But if it's just history of pneumonia, it shouldn't bring it forward. It doesn't care. You had history of pneumonia 20 years ago. Does the computer know that that's past tense, or is it current? Nowadays, it does. We've been able to fix that. So it looks at the grammar of the nomenclature of what brings. So that's how technology is getting better. That's why when you have CDI encoders frustrated with the computer and says, it's still learning. You got to tell us what it did so we can have a clinical annotator fix it to understand that. And that's happening more and more. And eventually the computer through artificial intelligence and natural language processes is happening. So that's where you see an individual in CDI that has, yes, clinical understanding of knowledge, but also has to have what I would call some English 101. How in what structural content was the diagnosis made? And it all depends on who? The dictator. Right? Different people talk right. and different mm-hmm. in, in the, the syntax, right? So you have those types of situations, right? And so you're looking at that realm where, yes, now you can be productive instead of, you know, I could review records through artificial technology brings all this highlight, you know, but there's still a concept where you're still going to have to read either, you know, technology is able to give you a clip note of what's pertinent. The computer could listen to the doctor, take away all the fluff and bring in what's actual information into the record, but you're still going to have to make the information. But what's interesting, that it all depends on the dictator still. If they just say congestive heart failure, the artificial intelligence is just going to say congestive heart failure. Now, the newest technology that exists is upfront CDI, which is not waiting for the chart to be completed by the doctor. It's actually with the doctor already interacting with the computer, where the doctor is saying, patient currently with pleural effusions, plus two pedal edema, congest- uh, assessment, congestive heart failure. Stop. The computer now says, do, 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 congestive heart failure. It says, wait a minute. They just did an echo on this patient. The computer already has the clinical annotation, looks at the information says they got they got an ejection fracture of fifteen and they got uh, you know systolic dysfunction. The computer puts that two and two together. They just gave them IV legs. The computer sees that, and the computer says, "Wait a minute. For consideration of systolic heart failure, please confirm based on this, 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 this that the computer found in the medical record." The doctor says, "Yes." systolic heart failure, it goes into the computer. That's step one. With ICD-11, it's already happening in other parts of the world. The computer now, the doctor says congestive heart failure. Now, since the codes in ICD-11 are digital, it automatically codes it, and it comes in there's no intervention of a coder at that point there was no intervention of clinical documentation but somebody still has to verify that all of that is going to be done before even anybody looks at the medical record it's done concurrently so it's concurrent cdi years ago there used to be what we call concurrent coding somebody was up on the floor writing out the codes as the patient was still in the house. This is happening up front. That is already happening. Not here in the United States because we don't have ICD-11. Is that available with ICD-10? Little bit different because the ICD-10 codes, although expandable, are not completely digitized. And with I-11, that's gonna be really the catalyst, Stacey, that's gonna pivot that into a globalization of being able to share information. So CDI, anybody going to the CDI world, you're still going to have to have that based understanding of how that computer came to that decision, because there's still going to be somebody validating. Are you going to be asking the question? No. Are you going to be constructing the question? No. Are you going to be coding the diagnosis based on the question? No. So it's going to be a different parameters about having somebody still. But as diagnoses come around, as technology advances, there's going to be the opportunity for a CDI-HIM clinical annotator working for a big firm such as Microsoft or Amazon or Google to be responsible. We talked about people becoming coders, but not coders from ICD-9, but coding in the technology world, building codes. This is the new realm of building codes from a clinical, but in order to build a code, you have to understand the ramifications of the clinical construct of the opportunity. Yeah, encephalopathy is a diagnosis, but is it toxic? Is it metabolic? Is it septic? Building this, and as you have the architects, another term, a clinical solutions architect, That's something that I've seen out there. These are people who have a very mastery level skill set that are being paid, ladies and gentlemen, of what they know, not what they do. It's not task. It's not putting a number. That's where I see it. I wish I was 30 years younger because that's going to be the exciting part of that where you're not, it's all gonna be in that technology, but it's gonna be building it. You're still gonna have to be somebody. It's like in HIT. HIT health information, the IT world functions, 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 but you got people in the background making sure there's not a hacker, making sure that the system it goes down is managing that. So that's where you see the concepts of, of, of technology working in that. And that's where I see that skill set. That's why I say HIM, HIT week. It's basically because you're going to have to need that skill set in order. Because even with any other any CDI program, for the most part, everybody has a CDI program. But everybody has some kind of technology software. And you really have to understand. And somebody, the other component of CDI is you're going to have the validator. And then you're going to have what I would call the health informaticist analyst. And then you're going to have the one who is going to be proficient at bringing all this wealth of data and making meaningful use for patient population health. So if you're interested in being the director of population health at your facility or for an institution, that's where I see the skill set of managing the, of having these individuals that you interpret of what this information means for statistics, for research, things that we've always done with HIM, right? And for what we've done. And obviously right now for what? Um, from a business perspective, for reimbursement methodology, particularly, and for quality. Everybody's interested in the quality perspective. So how do you determine quality is based on analyzing that the data that you're abstracting is correct. Because it's all about bringing patients as to, oh, you know, we got five stars in our facility. We're the only one who's done it for five years in a row. Prove it. That's the way you do it. So that's where I see, I don't see CDI as a, a the long soldier out there in the medical records. It used to be, Stacey, that we advocated always for having um, a nurse. I was always the in J. Thomas, I remember, and I says, I think you know HIMS could do it because you wouldn't have hired me. I'm not a nurse, and look what I know. Learn the skill set. Well, not everybody's like you. And I says, well, then let's clone me. Ha ha ha. No. <laughs> okay, let's build that skill set. And that's what I always tell the HIM professionals: take a course, put yourself out there. Yeah, I didn't know anything between systolic and diastolic. All the I studied it. It only made me better. And it made me, I think, even much better than other people in CDI who only had the clinical perspective because I had already what? The regulatory, all those three million rules and regulations, the coding clinic, the CPT assistance, all of that, the implication of what this code implies from a clinical equality, patient safety, clinical people never had that, that foundation. We did. What we lacked is the clinical aspects about knowing that. So it's really concentrating. If an individual is asking me an HIM, get all that foundation. That's great. But make sure you understand about what is really clinical integrity from a clinical perspective. And that means taking good courses in anatomy and not only in physiology, but in disease processes. That's extremely important. Not becoming a nurse from a, a critical skill set perspective, but understanding it. So understanding the clinical parameter. What is, what, what, and, and that a lot of it comes from where? And I tell people, you read your coding clinics enough. Sometimes they could be nebulous. You got to read like 3,000, sometimes a lot of times. To, what are they saying here? But there's a lot of information there. I done a great resources with that as well. And there's a lot. And then put yourself out there. Get yourself information from other association American, uh, uh, the Association of Clinical Integrity Documentation Specialists has a lot of resources. Becoming members out of your own comfort zone is a very good thing. And that's why when we talked about diversity with AHEM, I said it's important because I've learned a lot with other skill set, technology or clinical. So that CDI individual, the future, is not going to be somebody up on the floor asking the doctor. That information is going to be off front with the doctor. Right now, Stacy, as we speak, we have technology that has what we call the smart room. What does that mean? You walk into a doctor's offices and you have already, the, the walls are listening, HIPAA compliant, and as a doctor speaking with, the, there's no computer at a desktop or anything. As the doctor is speaking with the patient, the computer is listening through Dragon technology through natural language processing, and they're having an information. The computer will discuss, will take, will dictate already the H the history and physical, the signs and symptoms, the subjective opinion of the patient, the objective opinion of the doctor, any plan, any assessment, and put it all together. And then as it going, and it only brings in those relevant diagnoses for the patient. It's already listening to it. After that, the doctor will ask the computer, and the computer assess that. And, 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 and then if there's interaction with your pharmacy, interaction with any drugs that have to be done, or there's contraindications of medications, the computer at that point in time, we already talked, will have the ability that when the doctor says a specific diagnosis and if there's information in the medical record to have more specific information from previous visits, it'll bring it forward. AHIMA allows us to do that, compliance. If you have a history of systolic heart failure in a previous medical record, you got to ask it based on what's pertinent for this record, right? Well, the computer is able to assess tons of information, bring it, and then correlate it drop of a hat but it's happening what real time not after the fact physicians are gonna love it why you ask a doctor three days later about a patient what does the doctor have to do have to go back into the record to verify uh, well you know let me i'll answer it later because they have to go back and almost do a mini h again very disruptive so it's part of making workflow with a patient so all of that combined i think the cdi the cdi individual once again and could be has to have that clinical concept HIMa came out with a paper um, for compliance purposes for cdi but also for clinical um uh queries at one point Back in 2016, coding clinic came out and said that queries were a clinical job only for, uh, nurses. Well, that raised a ruckus, right?
1: As it should coders have a lot of clinical knowledge records. Do we
2: look at all the time? (laughs) Hey, I, I said, I said not true. This is Mario. I don't have an RN, but I know enough today, you know? from a documentation perspective, I can even tell you what medications could be required and what dosage based on what I've read. But anyway, but that's not my, my skill set. So fast forward three years later in 2019, they came out and says that a CDI could be blah, 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 including HIM as long as what? They had the clinical information. They had studied pharmacology and all that. So if you've kept up with all of the requirements, that's fine. But most people in HIM have not, perhaps, you know? So I'm saying that you got to be prepared. So the association says that you could be doing that. And I've seen, and I, and I think one of the best, and it was one of the questions that you had posed to me to study, one of the best programs that anybody could have, whether now or in the future, is having a subset hybrid of these professionals whose foundation, because I'm educated. I know enough clinical, but who's, my foundation is what? H-I-M. You have a clinical foundation by a nurse who's had clinical foundation, has dibble-dabbled a little bit in coding here and there. But then you have an him who has dibble dabbled a little bit of clinical information, just, to know, just enough to be dangerous or, or pleasantly educated from the thousands of records that we've read. But their foundation is what? regulatory and compliance and rules and regulations. So that's part. Having those two, no, if you have one person who knows all of that, more power to you, pay them a million bucks a year because that's the person that you need to really grab. But they don't pay you that. But having a team, you're going to have to have a team of that. And that team continues because I will tell you, the body does not mutate up to now, right? More, you know, diagnosis remains stable um, in regards to conditions, but what really exponentially changes, which is an advantage to the HIM professional, are the continuous fluctuations in the rules, the regulations, and the changes that are dictated either through changes in clinical decision-making or in regulatory political issues that dictate policy, that impact rules and regulation, whether it be from the HIM or the billing that does impact, right? So many times you see HIMers not only looking at globe, but they're looking at, for example, disposition of the patient, makes a whole impact, you know? And there's different areas of that that you really got to be looking at all the other ancillary component that impact the overall care to an individual in the continuum of health care. Hence, I said, not only the inpatient, but fast forward to today's industry of trying to keep people out of the hospital, right? So, CDI, yeah, um, they talk about CDI. And everybody says the buzzword, CDI outpatient. And I just, to stir the pot a little bit, you know, I says, you got to be Sicilian here. I says, what do you mean you got to be a Sicilian? Yeah, only the spoon knows what's stirring in the pot. And that's a Sicilian proverb. And well, What does that mean? You can hear about it, but you really know when you're in the pot. So what I'm saying is that when you're talking about outpatient CDI, says, what does it mean to you? Everybody talks about it from a, a very high level perspective. There's many issues with the outpatient. Outpatient is ambulatory, outside of the hospital. You're talking about physicians. You're talking about managed care entities. And I predict in the future where the jobs are going to be very necessary, where AI is going to be really, really, really um, uh, far more beneficial and lucrative to the HIM professional, where it's going to be far better implemented because it's going to be in the managed care settings outpatient. Why? Because the inpatient still going to have the issue about principal diagnosis, which is very subjective. It drives the DRGs, CCs, and MCCs that drive that. But on the managed care population, just give me what are the chronic conditions that you're treating, making sure that they're documented to the higher severity. You do that once a year and you're set for that patient so you get your RAF score. If that is something that the individual, the algorithms, the physician, as they're dictating, and the annotators validating that, that's where you need. And more and more. I see every day in the news, everybody opened up a new Advantage Care program. And the Advantage Care program is going to be where CDI is really going to take the biggest impact, not CDI in the outpatient ambulatory setting. That's not what I predict. I predicted in the advantage why? Because first of all, your growing population is gearing to that. Why? Cuz it's it's cheaper for a Medicare beneficiary. They pay almost zero out of pocket to belong to an organization, you know? And you got the availability of every hospital. At the same time, those managed care advantage programs when their patients are admitted to a facility, who pays for that? We yeah, have the managed care program. So the double whammy here is having somebody who can manage the health informatics CDI from the advantage CDI opportunity in the outpatient area. And then when that patient gets admitted, the advantage is making sure that you got the right DRG. That's going to be the gold mine, In my perspective, for the most valuable member of a CDI HIM team, I would say... As we speak right now is that where it stands. and it's only going to get even more of a need in the future five to ten five years from now. That's my prediction.
1: Now yeah. I agree with you about the coder skill set in you know CDI. I mean you know for many, many years there was always that battle. We were HIM people were complaining that RNs were taking all the jobs and coders weren't getting the CDI jobs. Um, And I think, you know, like you said, there's value because the coder, the coding professional has all the regulatory, they have all of that other knowledge, they have the ability to learn clinical knowledge, like for me, like in all the medical records that I've read over the years, and I don't even read inpatient records and read records to the extent that you do or other people do. But just in my experience, I picked up so much clinical knowledge From all the medical records that I've read, I've been able to diagnose friends and family members before they ever get to go see a doctor, you know, just because of the clinical knowledge. And so I feel like the coding professionals, if they want to get into CDI, because it can still be challenging for coding. I agree that team approaches the best, the physician, the nurse, the coding professional, because they all have their strengths. But coding professionals, or even if you're not in coding and you want to get into CDI or pursue that path. Always take that extra step to get that education on your own, what you were talking about, you know, the pathophysiology, the disease processes. I mean, I know when I was in school in the bachelor's program, well, for the associate's program, you take as a prerequisite to get into the bachelor's HIM, anatomy one and anatomy two. And then you take, when you get in the program, I think you take medical terminology and then you have like one semester of like disease processes, like at the right. bachelor's level and that's it. And I didn't know any of that stuff, you know, coming out of school, but it was getting out there, reading medical records over the years, learn early in my career. I had very little clinical knowledge, barely any, and then it comes, but there's so much you can learn on your own. You could go on the internet and Google and find things for free and learn all this information. You don't even have to go join a formal program or take classes. It's helpful if you can afford that, go, go enroll in a college class, you know, for these things, not in a full program, but just to get the clinical knowledge, but I feel like anytime I'm like looking at a record and I don't understand something clinically, I'm like, what is this condition? I'm like, I don't even know how to code. It. I go to Google and guess what? I find my answer on Google for something clinically that I don't know. I'm able to read about it. And now I have new
2: knowledge. So Stacy, you bring a very valuable point that we have not, that we've left out. We talked about the CDI, the clinical. We talked about the HIMR right? The regulatory, we talk about claims. So now where's the patient, the consumer in all of this? Well, I'll tell you what I predict. As the baby boomers are getting to retirement, like Mario, I'm a very well-educated consumer, not because I'm an HIMer, But most people now have what? Access to what? Their health information. Mm -hmm. It used to be that when there was a medical record, it was like the sacred scroll. It was my record, but you never saw it. It was the doctor and the nurses. And it's all about you and you never had access to it. You couldn't intervene or read it. Well, let me see what he wrote about me today or whatever like that. So now you have portals where you could go and check your information to make sure, unless you know, there are certain restrictions depending on the patient's diagnosis or their availability to understand. but for the most part, you have it's your right to look at your information and correct the information that's not appropriate. And I'll give you a story about how the educated consumer comes about and how important it is. I was at a client site, and I had a CDI and I was in the CDI room where at that time. You know, we're discussing there was a call that came in from the doctor. The doctor was sort of confused and was calling the CDI. It says that the patient had called her, the doctor, saying that there was an inappropriate diagnosis of opioid dependence in her medical record, which is a psychiatric code. Patient said, "I'm not a drug abuser," and the patient was very upset because this obviously, and it's a, a commercial or whatever it is, and this could be a problem not only from the billing, correct billing, but from a parameters of a psychiatric diagnosis and even for other ramifications. I asked the CDI what happened, and I says, what's going on? I says, well, they had had some training based on, you know, uh, for coding. And I look, let me see the claim. It was the only CC on the medical record. Not that it mattered, but it, it did raise the DRG because it was a DRG payer. And I says, well, and that, so then we sat down with that record, and I says, well, what are the behavioral manifestation of this patient being accused of uh, of having drug abuse? Where's in the medical record? Well, the patient is uh, has um, chronic pain. I uh, says, yeah. Does that making dependence? What are we talking dependence of? Yeah, I got hypertension. Mario has, I'm dependent on my blood pressure medication so that my blood pressure is what? Regulated. I'm taking medication as prescribed, which is important from that perspective. I'm not dependent. And when we talk about dependence, you got to read the rules. A dependent psychiatric diagnosis is that you have physical manifestations to seek that drugs out of the realm of, medical care. And so it's very easy to classify one of these psychiatric codes without, you know, and you query the physician whether they're dependent and the physician says, "Well, yeah, they're dependent clinically," not knowing what the rule is about what dependence means from a coding perspective. This patient is not going out to the pharmacy or to the ER screaming, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, give me more opiates so they could, you know, hike up the dose and feel a little bit better while they're having a cocktail of gin and tonic. That is the picture that you don't see there. And that's why I say people, oh, that's not what we were trained or whatever it is. It says, well, and, and, but this patient saw their, and saw that diagnosis and she was upset. She even called her lawyer, the compliance department got involved, and then I got involved, and then I had to do re-education for for everybody. But the physicians were being asked, but in what content is the question? It was from a clinical perspective, right? And so that's to give you an example how the consumers nowadays are able, I have my medical records, I'm able to go into my medical records, and I'm able to see, okay, fine, you know, and it's very detailed about what the diagnoses are. We all have that opportunity to make sure that the diagnosis is correct. Somebody could copy and paste wrong information. So now your consumer is is very much as the our you know population gets more seasoned, such as individuals in my that I am at the later spectrum of the baby boomers. Most of us, most people now are very educated. Whether they're even not even HM or clinical, because almost everybody else that can go on Google, search something, and you can have signs or symptoms for that. You know, some people freak out or whatever it is, you know, thinking over diagnosis, you're still gonna have to have medical care. But people are far more educated and far more involved in their health care. Not only from a fiscal perspective of to shopping around for good cost of health care, but understanding. Gone are the days where it was you know, the gods of the doctors, you know, up there, and the patient is, whatever you say, Don't no, that's not it. We're having a conversation. You're a doctor. I've hired you for my health care, but I'm involved. I'm involved, not as a, uh, I'm involved as a participant in my health care, which is what's important so people could take responsibility for their own outcome as well and to make sure of what it means. It's one, you know, these rules and regulations, you're sending patients with discharge. I'm glad Joint Commission changed. A lot of times the discharge notes were on Greek to the patients, instructions, abbreviations. Well, to you and I, COPD, of course, that's pulmonary disease, CHF. No, you got to put it in terms that are appropriate to uh, the individuals that they follow the health care. For our parents, they're, they need us to manage their health care now. But for the next people, the next round of generation coming in, and now that's me who just basically taught himself computer skills because I had a typewriter. Can you imagine now the millennials, the generations, all of these individuals are far more involved in their health care and far more active and more assertive, not aggressive, but very assertive in that. And so that's gonna also change the dynamics of people getting more involved in what they're uh, for documentation purposes
0: as well.
1: Yeah, I think patients having access to information is a good thing. There's a downside in certain instances to them having access to information. One area that concerns me about patient access is the, with information blocking, that patients have to be able to get access to their information when they ask for it. Me working in radiology, I think about the ramifications of someone getting a radiology result that they don't understand and it's causing them unnecessary stress because there's really nothing wrong with them. You know, in radiology reports, there's a lot of stuff that's clinically irrelevant. It's not going to affect the patient. Then on the flip side, what if somebody is seeing the report, seeing they've been diagnosed with cancer and they haven't seen their physician and now they're dealing with this and they're freaking out. And I think about psychologically, if people aren't right, somebody might go take their own life if they see something like that, if they're not in a good, I foresee bad outcomes. So it's like finding that balance between what they can access when they can access it i know there's arguments on both sides the patient should have it right away and i get that but on the other hand i'm like eh, i kind of don't know i feel like there needs to be some type of waiting period but then you have physicians who drop the ball and don't review information in a timely manner and don't notify their patients this happened with a family member where the serious condition went a whole month with the doctor never following up and i told you know this is my father and i told my she goes well we haven't heard anything from the surgeon i'm sure it's okay i said no 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 i said never assume that no news is good news because things fall through the cracks and sure enough when she called about it oh there is a problem yes surgery is required but for whatever reason, the doctor's office didn't follow through. So I'm like, where's, so you need to have it there for checks and balances. Or like myself years ago, before we had portals and we could see our records, when I went out on my own in business and I needed to get health insurance, I'm applying and they request medical records like they do when you're getting individual coverage. And they denied me for a pre-existing condition. And I'm like, what do you mean? So I'm requesting my medical records. I'm looking at them, EHR, copy, paste, pulling stuff forward resolved condition that was a question never was full was pulled forward year after year after year they're tagging me for that then they're also saying that i had um this other issue and that there was never any explanation for it and i'm like but i had a test to rule this like out if i would have seen my record prior to applying Mm -hmm. for insurance i could have corrected it a lot sooner if i had been aware and at that point it was too late because then I started having health issues and then I couldn't get insurance for real. And it was, I was without insurance for many years with tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills. So I've been on that side of it. And, but again, it's like people don't understand what they're looking at. So what do you think is like the balance there with the patient access where it's helpful? So you can advocate for yourself and you could be aware because providers do screw up and drop the ball um, they're human. Like, where do you think is that perfect balance with the access? And then you have patients that go overboard and are crazy and want to question everything. And that's a burden for providers to deal with. It is.
2: Well, the fine balance interesting about with radiology because radiology and you're looking at diagnostics. I think what happens here is that there's a difference between what source document is available, um, but it is available. I mean, you could have your lab results a quest diagnostics and there's an app and it's already available to you even before the doctor got it and be able to read it. And, and it tells you red and green, red is bad, green is that. And then, so what does that mean? What, so now the, you got to wait. So there's assessments on that. Right. So, you know, I think it kind of is educating the, 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 um, the, uh, the patient or the consumer that, the information that you're reading may be an excerpt, like in a book, but you gotta read it as full content. And so this information that you have with access of information, it has to have the full access of information is being able to, what is the final information that your doctor has determined based on their diagnoses. You're absolutely right with radiology, but it's interesting that you mentioned radiology. Last year with, um, I, I review what's new for the uh, inpatient prospective payment system for DRGs, the new codes but I also look at new technology. One of the newer technology is in radiology that's available for physicians and hospitals, where if it's a diagnosis that is a diagnosis of of critical concern, such as, you know, a melanoma, a cancer, things like that, that artificial intelligence with a a computer and diagnostics immediately puts a flag to the doctor that has to be addressed immediately. There's, or else it locks up doctors so so there is that so so the cracks that you spoke about doesn't happen until eventually it is something that provides because a month to wait for an action of a diagnosis obviously could be very critical to an individual with such a diagnosis right so time is essence so that's where you see the advent of wrapping this conversation with artificial intelligence or artificial intelligence from a clinical perspective it could be a very life-saving situation as well, in order to speed up that process to avoid the um, the cracks that fall through the system before a, a, a diagnosis is read. Right. I would believe that in, in instances where you know it's like you know, either you restrict information for all or it's available to everybody else, you know? So it's about educating the consumer. Me you know, if I, if I if I if I if I get a result immediately, I, I want to know what it is. But I'm educated enough not to react. But then again, some people might react differently. It says, "Oh, I got cancer. I'm going to blow my head off today." You know, because I'm I'm done for. Exactly, exactly. exactly. And, and so when you have that, I mean, there are situations where you may have, based on the information. Well, maybe if the information were told in a setting with a a social worker, a psychiatrist, a, a, a rabbi, a priest or whatever, says, you know, so it's a whole thing about confronting this news of how you deal with it. Obviously, it's very important. But you know, we're in information overwhelm here. So obviously the information that you have available um, you know, could be meaningful to somebody, it could be detrimental to some other people. So it's a hard question to have. I, I believe people should have access to their information and obviously in the content of once you have this information to discuss it with your provider to understand what are the implications and of this information that you are reviewing. Because I would like to see my medical record if in fact uh, there's a diagnosis that somebody wrote there that I, I don't agree with. Or it could be detrimental to my history and physical in the future if I needed to get maybe an insurance or something down the road, right? Or somebody could have clicked in the wrong information there and said, uh, you know, assessment smoker. Well, I don't smoke, but if I got smoker, then know I, then I, my rates for insurance could could go higher. So I believe people should have access to information. I believe that if the individual may uh, perhaps is not capable of understanding the information, which most people may not know, then I mean, from a psychiatric perspective. But you have to understand what the information is. For you and I, it would be a no-brainer. We're, we know the lingo, we know the language. Most individuals, my experience has been, at least within my family, I says, "You know, I says, oh, I'm waiting for the doctor to call me." And I says, "Well, do you know you have your labs available for you already? You could get." Them. And I go, what the heck do I need? I don't know. I won't know what it means. And I said, okay. And I say to myself, you're absolutely right. You know? But, but, but then again, if, if you have a radiology yeah. and it says you got a brain tumor, you got a tumor. Well, what kind of tumor do right. I have? Now what's the next step? You know? Exactly. But exactly. You can't wait two or three months down the road. Yeah. That's why I'm saying technology is now in place to assist physicians that when there is such a an issue that immediately that information is communicated. It used to be that you have an X-ray and maybe you had to wait till somebody dictated or something, but that's automatically now with dragging technology and things like that. So, yeah, I'm interested feel- to
1: see, I'm interested to see where artificial intelligence takes us and diagnosing patients because I'm seeing it starting to be used in radiology and analyzing diagnostics, analyzing films and things of that nature. Because I think about, you know, Doctors you know, are great and they're wonderful, but there are times when, and I've dealt with this as a patient, when you are having health issues and you are going to doctor after doctor after doctor and no one has answers for you and they're just looking for the obvious problems and they're trying to treat symptoms and they don't have an answer. And I went through that for a long period of time and I know other people who've gone through that. Whereas once I actually suspected what was wrong with me when I finally put the pieces together and I Googled it, I'm like, oh my gosh, all the information is right there in front of me. It explains the whole, you know, list of 15 to 20 symptoms I was having when no doctor wanted to look at them collectively. They just wanted to look at certain systems and give me your top three problems and we'll contend with those. I'm like, but no, I don't go from being symptom free to having 15 to 20 different symptoms, like almost overnight or in a short Mm -hmm. amount of time without it being related. And so I feel like those people who are searching for a diagnosis and can't get it, if artificial intelligence enters the space where you have this vast, you know, body of information out there of all these rare conditions or not common conditions, um, you know, that that people have, that it can help the doctors find the needle in the haystack potentially when they're not finding any of their cause, when they're ruling things out one after another, after another, they go for the most obvious and then they start whittling it down. And then some just give up and say, well, I can't find anything wrong with you. That's what I had happen with multiple positions. There's nothing wrong with you. Every test is normal. Well, I'm telling you, there is something wrong with me. I don't care what the, your tests haven't found it yet. We haven't found what it is, but it's there. And Me being in the medical profession, I was able to kind of dig around and advocate for myself a little bit more. Again, other people who don't have that knowledge, they just, I understand why they feel lost and then they just give up and they never get any answers. And it might take years and years and years. So I feel technology will help with that. And I think access to information, more information for patients, there's more good that can come from it than bad that can come from it. If you're like, you know, weighing it, you, certain situations need to be handled True. differently, but it's the more information you have. And I agree, it's a generational thing because, you know, our parents think like, well, the doctor told me this, so I'm going to yeah. do what the doctor told me, or they wait for the doctor. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, it doesn't like me, my whole life, when a doctor tells me to do something, I question it. I research it. I don't take their word for it. And I would say the vast majority of the time, I don't do what they tell me to do. <laughs> it's like, I make my own, own conclusion. So Some might term me as a difficult patient, but I'm like, no, you're not just going to put me on a prescription. I'm not doing that. I'm going to, I, you know, I'm like that person. Don't get procedures done unless you absolutely need them. Don't take medications unless you absolutely need them. And doctors are incentivized to prescribe and they're incentivized to perform procedures based on how the system is set up. So sometimes there are physicians out there, you know, that do medically unnecessary procedures on patients. It does happen. It absolutely yeah, does, They're
2: sticking out there. Right, and, and you're absolutely right. I think one of the things is being an advocate for your own healthcare and being a participant in your healthcare. I mean, when you're taking a medication, most of us will do, well, let me see what the contraindications are. What are the side effects of this? These are things that we do now are the generation, which is the silent generation, our parents, they, whatever the doctor does. And what I tell the physicians is that nowadays medicine is based on clinical decision algorithms that past of 40 years ago where you have most of the clinician where things were done through, you know, a little, uh, maybe a lab, but there were no CAT scans, PET scans and all of this. It was based on the art of medicine, right? So now what we're doing is, and you ask the question, what is the impact of artificial intelligence? Already, artificial intelligence is involved in making radiological diagnoses based on the algorithms, and the tests result that they are far more accurate in many instances because of what? The database that's available to determine this. Obviously, with the clinical architecture that has been promulgated, and I foresee that that's in the future. Right now, it's being done not through artificial intelligence, but through the school of hard knocks. You go to a hospital, you got a Fatima of a hospitalist, and the hospitalist is, is going to depend on what? The labs, the radiology. It's going to, based on that, it's going to take that information. That's what we do as coders as well when you're looking at all those other source documents. And eventually, we don't come up with a diagnosis, but when we see the diagnosis, it's like, wait a minute, I think this diagnosis is far more accurate than what it is, than what it is, is, is this document based on all the other information. So, yes, artificial intelligence is able. Do that is able to ask the question for diagnosis, it's already happening in many's perspective. Now, when you're talking about what's the principal diagnosis and whether it's an MCC or CC, leave that up to the coder because then that dictates differentiations. I mean, you know, so I think from making at the end of the day, the doctor is interested not in the DRG, but what is the final diagnosis. And then you're considering you know, all the other parameters about cl- what clinical decision makings are being done in uh on artificial intelligence i'll take the example for sepsis are you using sepsis 2 criteria or sepsis 3 criteria where sepsis 3 criteria is harder to meet some insurance company wants you to use sepsis 3 criteria so that you don't bill for sepsis but at the end of the day the doctor is do- documenting sepsis because they don't care you know what the insurance company does at this point in time, but you got to make sure that the diagnosis is correct based on an audit that's being done. So you have these issues about clinical decision making artificial intelligence from a clinical perspective. What needs to be also addressed at a national level, which AHIMA hasn't done, you know, they leave it up to the coder or the hospital to speak with the payer. AHIMA should speak with payers because now you have some facilities that you know, they use sepsis two criteria, sepsis three criteria. At the end of the day, both patients have sepsis, but the insurance company, so the insurance company is dictating uh, a, what, a diagnosis. But then again, you get into the lobbying of what? Insurance companies and pharma, And so it's a whole world of trying to deal with medicine. And that's why I empathize very much with the medical community and with doctors. They're being at all this well i need you to document this because as well i'll document it's appropriate because if we miss this we won't get paid for this we won't get paid for that and at the end of the day some doctor says they'll do it and what i've seen is is sometimes it's where you get into trouble because then you have an inappropriate um diagnosis such as that lady that got documented with you know opioid dependent because she's a chronic pain and she's on prescribed medications you know so Once again, the HIMCDI professional, wealth of opportunity to have from an educational perspective, pivoting yourself to move into these other realms of where you need to be at the table. And um, sometimes any people that are at the table don't know that you even exist. And so that's why sometimes it's good just to invite yourself to the party. And if you're not invited to the table, make your own table, ladies and gentlemen. Definitely.
1: That wraps up part two of my interview with Mario Perez. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks for the next episode. ICD-11 is coming. You don't want to miss this episode. Mario and I will discuss the implementation of ICD-11, how it differs from ICD-10, and how it will impact the future of medical coding. Additionally, we speculate on when ICD-11 may be implemented in the United States. As always, I want to thank all of my listeners. If you are loving the podcast and listen on Apple, which most of you listen on Apple, (laughs) please take a moment to give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a review. And as always, please, please, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have feedback that you'd like to share on an episode or you have a topic suggestion, please send an email to podcast at radrx.com. That's podcast at radrx.com. Thanks again for tuning in and have an amazing week.
0: Thank you for listening to Who Cares What Stacy Says. You can connect with Stacy on social media. You can find her business page for RadRx on Facebook, and you can connect with her personally on LinkedIn. Don't forget to check out the online training courses offered by RadRx, Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology Online Training, or Cracking the Diagnostic Radiology Code Online Training. Thanks again for tuning in to Who Cares What Stacey Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level.